Main Street to Wall Street. Global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. How do you transform a brand from a smoothie shop into a global healthy lifestyle brand? Well, that's what we asked James D. White, the former chair, president, and CEO of Jamba Juice. As a transformational leader, he has over three decades of experience in the retail, consumer product, and restaurant industries, including brands like Gillette, Nestle, Purina, Pet Care, and Coca-Cola. James is also a passionate champion for diversity and inclusion and the author of Anti-Racist Leadership, How to Transform Culture in a Race-Conscious World, a book he co-authored with his daughter, Krista. Guest hosting this episode of All Business with Jeff Hazlett is Trisha Ben, the Chief Community Officer of the C-Suite Network. Trisha, Happy New Year, and uh, thanks for having me on. So thrilled to have you be here. Uh, James, this conversation to me is just the epitome of excellence in what we can do with great businesses and great business leadership in our everyday as we're building our businesses and brands and the teams that serve those brands and the communities um, that they serve. So let's just get started with this incredibly impressive background that you have. You have so much experience with notable brands. I mean, these are the biggest brands in the world. How were you able to apply all of that experience into what you did at Jamba Juice, now known, of course, as Jamba? Really, for, for me, it was uh, really 30 years of really fantastic experience in uh, a combination of industries that culminated uh, with me as CEO of Jamba. But I started my career right out of college, University of Missouri, at the Coca-Cola Company, which would have been a foundational experience for me. And then I spent most of my career at Nestle Purina, 15, almost 16 years various commercial and operational roles there, and then went on to an executive role at the Gillette Company, followed by a stint at Safeway Stores. You know, so consumer products, did retail, and then ultimately was appointed as chair and CEO uh, at Jamba. But it was a combination of really fantastic experience uh, with great brands, leadership experiences cross-functionally that culminated uh, in my appointment as CEO uh, at Jamba. You were part of these incredible brands and all of them to me have in common that notion that there is a responsibility to change the world, you know, to create a, a better world. And I'd love to hear more about your perspective on that. You know, mission and purpose, I know, is absolutely core for you. How did you take that to really create and that belief to really create that difference in how you led Jamba and and really create a tremendous success? Really, for me, there's a couple things that have been kind of foundational really across my career. One is uh, really the quality of the brands and the leadership of the companies that I ended up working for. And I've been able to take small and large parts of every place that I've been and was able to apply that uh, as CEO at Jamba to the values and transformation of that company. I worked for some of the finest under some of the finest CEOs. You know, my first job uh, out of college, Roberto Boisueta, the fantastic former CEO at the Coca-Cola company, a legend, uh, Jim Kiltz at the Gillette company, also a legend uh, in the industry. And I had the good pleasure of working for both uh, 
Brian Cornell, who's the target company CEO, and mm-hmm. Steve Burr, who was the CEO at Safeway. And they I work with both of them at Safeway Store. So really fantastic experience really across the board that allowed me to take the best lessons from each of those leaders and apply them to my work as CEO at Jamba and kind of foundational for me is the investment that I always try to make in people and culture. What does that look like? So if you were to say just those, you know, maybe top two, what were those two best pieces of practical, applicable, (laughs) implementable uh, learnings that you were able to take through all of those roles? I think the, the the main thing is I've always invested in my team. So the investment in training and development and uh, making sure there were systems and processes to really hear from the frontline workforce, which I think allows you to make better business decisions, especially in a retail or a, a restaurant in, environment would be one of the lessons. So listening hard as a leader. And the other one is really working hard on creating an environment where everybody can bring their best talent and full selves to the job. So culture leadership. Yes. Okay. So this is a perfect segue, I think, into the new book that you have coming out on March 1st. And I know we will definitely want to make sure that we have you back and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to order the book, The Anti-Racist Leadership, How to Transform Culture in a Race-Conscious World. What inspired you to write the book? And I've got so many more questions for you. But first, what inspired you to write it? Really, the inspiration, Tricia, for the book was a, a coupleful. I'd been uh, working on a project with one of the uh, CEOs and companies that I consulted with, uh, with my daughter, uh, Krista, uh, around this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as we started to look at the work, kind of think about my 30 years of experience working in the space as a CEO, one of the things that we quickly found is there is really not much content from CEOs or board members on this topic. And what we thought we would be able to uniquely bring to the table is a a viewpoint from the boardroom, from the C-suite, from a leader who had actually worked on these topics across a broad career. And we blended that with the perspective of my millennial daughter who really pushed dad to contemporize really all of my views in terms of how we thought about delivering something that would impact uh, CEOs and leaders at all level and hopefully the future uh, generation of uh, leadership. So the book really captures my 30 years of experience, but we also interviewed a dozen plus other executives from CEOs to chief people officers to chief diversity officers. What we wanted to be able to offer the reader is a practical way to grapple with a challenging issue uh, that'll be increasingly important as we all think about the future of work. We've got an increasingly global and more diverse workforce that'll require a different set of leadership capabilities moving forward. C-Suite Radio. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. 
Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's so interesting to me, you mentioned contemporizing the language and the the concepts with your daughter's collaboration. And I'm really curious in terms of your personal experience in leading an appreciation for the diversity of race, but then very quickly, obviously, you get into religion, gender, and everything else that makes us diverse all the way through to our approaches and thinking and communities and so on. How has that language changed? And and do you think it's for the better? So I think it's definitely for the better. And what I would say is a combination of the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, and the global racial reckoning. The conversations that we're having are more detailed. If you go back to 2020, there were hundreds of statements on anti-racist leadership and commitments uh, from companies. What I think we found missing was what to do after the statements that could be operationalized into companies to create better cultures and more inclusive leadership. And that's what we attempt to do with the book is really give practical how-tos, action steps from lots of different perspectives that'll allow leaders to really change uh, their company culture. One of the things that we've really been focused on in C-Suite Network is our values as a community. So we say four R's, relevancy, reach, reciprocity, and respect. And respect is one that we've really armed around to try to create an environment where there's real conversation. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are and what you've seen really work in that highly charged, highly politicized environment. How do you get people having real trusting conversations to get rid of some of the ignorance, to really empower the greatness. Um, What are those practical steps, James, that you recommend? I think first and foremost for me, I think the leader, the the CEO, she's got to be involved in the the work. You can't delegate culture or leadership. So you can't create a, a DEI department or a function or event and then walk away from it. So the leader, she has to be involved. The second point would be you've got to start where you are. So an assessment of just the current state of play of the organization ends up being an important kind of starting point. The premise of our book is the the issue and the opportunity is this is a systems level issue. So you've got to look at the company from an institution perspective and look at what are the processes that are in place for hiring and promotion and pay, et cetera. What are the practices? What are the symbols and rituals inside the companies? All those have to be evaluated and some of them potentially change. The best companies really build this work into the DNA of the company. So it shows up in the strategy work they do. It shows up in the values that they espouse as a company. And it's not a one-time event. This is a evolution really over time. And as my daughter Krista says, and it's it's a changing target. It'll change five to ten years from now. So this is an ongoing capability, ongoing piece of 
uh, work that we have to tend to as a leader. It's interesting, the focus that you have, and I know that you're very much emphasizing the importance of being sensitive to others, to be empathetic to others. And building on what you were just sharing, I'm curious, how do you build that kind of empathy that draws people in as opposed to pushing them away? And I think so often when you do have that politicized environment, you end up pushing people away that really should be allies, that really should be able to put themselves in the same shoes to be able to go in the right direction and obviously deliver a greater success. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and and how you really see that happening as opposed to being talked about or virtue signaled. And Tricia, that's a, I think that's a fantastic question. And really one of the major contributions of my daughter, Krista, was around this whole idea of empathy. And one of her questions to me is, she heard me talk about the need for leaders to be empathetic. And one of the questions that we posed to the dozen or so executives that we interviewed is, can you develop empathy? That sense, and, and, and we got different kinds of responses and how people work that into their own capabilities or try to build that into their company. But the, the, the sense that the leader has responsibility for the culture, and then you step back and say, what are the levers that a leader might affect to impact how people believe they belong in the culture, how their voices are heard, how they're viewed and recognized inside the company. And we know clearly that's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to be different with a different context at each company. But the thought process is that the leaders are thinking hard about really how to create the climate for everyone to bring their full selves to the companies to make their greatest contribution. And that's a bit of art and science uh, and certainly requires process. Where have you seen the greatest success with that, James, where, where you were just absolutely taken aback in terms of creating that environment yourself? Because with the success you've had, I truly believe great business success comes from being able to unite a team. And when you're focused on that inclusivity, you're seeing those little examples that make the greatness of the whole team. I'm curious which ones stand out to you. There's probably two or three examples across my career. One of the early uh, successes was the team teams that we built at Nestle Purina. We were incredibly cross-functional, process-driven, had fantastic leaders really at all levels. And we were able to really deliver just phenomenal results. That, for me, that's where I really learned many of the principles uh, that we've tried to share in the book, like action learning, which for me, I refined there with a, a colleague who um, headed up organizational design, Janice uh, Dewis, and I ended up working with Janice at almost every stop after Nestle Purina. But it was really about bringing together people cross-functionally from different backgrounds and really unlocking the full potential of the operation one of the things that we posit with the book is that cross-functional teams and folks from more diverse backgrounds do a better job of building a culture sustainably to be more diverse and more inclusive. But I also had fantastic experience at the Gillette company and then you know, ultimately was able to apply all the lessons learned really across my journey as CEO at Jamba. C-Suite Radio. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm going to ask another question in the spirit of truly of, of learning. I was recently asked to give a speech on women in the C-suite. And honestly, there was part of me, I was thrilled to do it. It's a, a business partner and dear friend of mine. And the other part of me thought, oh, you know, I'm being asked to talk about body parts that have nothing to do with my leadership. And it's such a challenge. And I'm curious, as you look at diversity, equity, inclusion, and certainly race in, in the workplace, how do you address those kinds of challenges in a meaningful way without pigeonholing around that topic? And I'm very sensitive to that with our conversation, by the way. I have a whole slew of other questions. I know everybody else is going to want to open up to other questions. but But how do you do that in a way that doesn't end up marginalizing or pigeonholing into a diversity conversation, a tremendous leader, regardless of any of those demographics that we all fit into? I just think the uh, the educational journey that we're all on as business professionals, I don't concern myself with being pigeonholed. If you asked me if five or six years ago, you could have imagined me writing this book, likely not, but this book is kind of driven by this moment in time. It's driven by a combination of the pandemic. And if you know somebody was going to write a credible book to drive meaningful leadership change, it should be somebody who's set in the seat. And I happen to have done that, have a lot of passion for the work. So for me, at this particular moment, Tricia, I'm actually leaning into everybody that wants to have the discussion. I want to have that conversation with them. And I'll take you back to 2020 for myself, what I wanted to be able to do, because I've done a lot of things across my career. I wanted to see if I could have a system impact on as many of the industries as I had worked in. You know, so as an example, I've worked in the restaurant industry. That industry is incredibly diverse at the frontline workforce and not so diverse in the boardroom and C-suite. You know, so I've joined forces with there. There were uh, five or six black CEOs. Uh, we've done a significant amount of work with the Multicultural uh, Hospitality Association uh, to try to address that issue in the restaurant mm-hmm. space. I've worked in the organic kind of natural industry with a group of CEOs last year. There's a Jedi collaborative where they're working on diversity, equity, and inclusion and work with a dozen CEOs last year to try to impact the systems that make that industry not as diverse as we'd like to see it. So that's a long-winded way of saying, uh, bring it on. I'm passionate (laughs) about the work and this work as a result of the project with my daughter has really become now my life's work. And I've spent time having the conversation in boardrooms um, with the CEOs that I work with. And um, every time I have a forum and a platform, so I'm happy to, to do that. What an incredible legacy. And it's so wonderful to hear how you speak of your daughter and that inspiration and collaboration and also generational impact. Um, just just absolutely tremendous. I love that. And I'm grateful for that response because at the end of the day, if we're not all engaging in the conversation, then how do we expect things to change? And it's such a powerful and important conversation. Okay. So then before I leave this topic, then 
I'd love to have you share what you think really is missing. We all get those scenarios. Uh, there isn't, you know, we weren't able to find a woman that was qualified. We weren't able to find a person of color that was qualified, et cetera, et cetera. What are your, you know, words of wisdom in terms of what we should be expecting from boards, what boards can be doing to make sure that they're upping the diversity in their in their boardroom? I think, you know, whether it's the boardroom or the C-suite or inside the companies, I think we've got to look different places. We maybe have to work a little bit harder to maybe think about talent differently from different industries that might be transferable into our industries. But I think the misnomer is that the talent isn't available to be found is just absolutely, you know, kind of un- True. I've got an organization that I'm a member of the Executive Leadership Council, which is 700 black executives that report to the CEO or they or CEOs or sit on board. So that's 700 people. There are groups like that for Latino and Asian executives as well. There are organizations that would be populated with LGBTQ plus executives. So we've just got to work a little bit harder. And I think the most thoughtful leaders and the best companies in the future are going to want to have access to all the talent that is available, whether it's in the boardroom or the C-suite or in the most entry-level parts of the company. And those are going to be the winners in the future. Uh, the, the future of war, in my estimation, is what is going to require anti-racist leaders that are building more inclusive companies. So, James, I love that. And I want to come back to the community again in a second. but. Your prediction for what the future means, why is that? Because a lot of times I think, again, the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation ends up being that would be nice to, that would be right to, not necessarily good business. So what makes it good business? What makes it so that those companies will be the most successful in the future? I think we've got a couple of things that are happening. You've got a generational change. So at least my kids view more diverse workplaces as just a minimum requirement. So a combination of the future of our all of our workforces and our consumers are going to hold us accountable differently. And that's one of the things that we've learned, I think, over the last couple years. So that would be point one. And then we've got a really a, a global community that is becoming far more diverse, more virtual in terms of the ways that we work. So the excuses that, you know, I don't know where to find the talent with us working remotely and virtually, the talent could be anywhere. So, you know, there, there, as we did some of our research, there are some of the best tech companies that would create satellite offices in places like Atlanta or DC, where there is more diverse population. So they get the benefit of having all the voices brought to the conversation to solve problems for customers. I love that. It's it's really the, the impact we can have with great business. Where do you think that responsibility ends? There, there's never been a more important time, at least in our country, maybe in the world for uh, business to be a force for good. I think we have the opportunity to impact internally our own companies, but the communities that we serve and society as a whole. And I think we sit at a moment in time where CEOs of companies and boards will have to weigh in on critical social issues, these the critical social issues of our time. It's so powerful. So we are sitting at the sort of juxtaposition of this incredible transformational change 
expedited by the digital, the ripping off of the last of the digital world uh, band-aid. And so I'm curious, James, there are predictions like 208 years now for women to reach parity. And, and I know we could add up who, however many years, depending on which demographic grouping we're looking at that's completely underrepresented in the C-suite, in the boardrooms. If we're sitting here five to 10 years from now, what kind of difference do you think we can make in terms of that representation in the C-suite, in the boardroom? What would you like to see and, and where will we be? I think the best companies are doing it today and they, the most thoughtful leaders really understand that, and this is a bit cliche-ish, but the differentiating advantage has always been people. And I think the best leaders really understand that and they're going to have access to broader pools of talent that come, that, you know, versus companies that don't get this. And they, those leaders fundamentally build their companies structurally to be able to recruit and retain and promote talent really from all over, from various places so that they have access to the full pool of talent. Incredible. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.